Okay, so today I'm talking with David Weekly, who um, I've actually watched him for from afar for a number of years, and he's a very smart guy in uh, in the Bay Area. And um, David's working on a number of interesting things. He actually runs PB Wiki, which is short for the Peanut Butter Wiki, which I happen to know because that is uh, one of the things that we use to publish the Meet Innovators interviews. I bet you didn't know what? that, David. No, I didn't. I'm very glad that you're using it. Yep, so we're a user, um, and we can talk about that in the interview. Um, but before we go on and talk about what you're currently doing, um, Dave, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and, and, and where you come from? Sure. Well, I'm very much a nerd by birth as much by training. I started programming at the age of five. Uh, my dad was a... At the age of five? I, I was, like, trying to learn to talk when I was five. <laughs> Uh, we just had an Apple IIc lying around the house. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just kind of copied in these programming columns that were in the back of the kids' magazines that I was getting at the time. But my uh, my father's father, his job title was actually computer. So I'm rather literally the descendant of a computer. Uh, so this, this stuff is, is very directly uh, in my blood. I started programming very early, as I mentioned, and uh, did actually some work in high school for MIT Lincoln Labs and Harvard Physics Labs, and then went to Stanford as an undergraduate, got my degree in computer science. I didn't really have a hard time deciding what I wanted to major in, and um, graduated in 2000. Worked for a big company, worked for a small company, and then went to go start my own company. Involved in a lot of different random things. I was very involved with computer graphics and then computer audio uh, undergraduate. And I believe I wrote the first layman's level description for what MP3 was in the spring of 1997. Hmm. Yeah, you published a lot on your website, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I started um, that website in 1996 when I was uh, still in high school, um, about to join Stanford. Hmm. So I first got on the Internet around 1990 through my father's email account at uh, Genred. So uh, <laughs> I remember back when, this must have been like 92 or so, that they actually had a, a book published that had everybody's email address that was on the Internet. And I was very proud because I was, I was in that book. Oh, really? Well, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty serious. I mean, I think I, I might have you by a year. I think I got on the Internet in 1989. But uh, I was—I certainly wasn't in that book. I didn't have an email address until like 1993. Got it. Did you mean 1989? 1989, yeah. Yeah, got it. Cool. Very cool. But yeah, I'm I'm out of the book, so I mean, I guess my coolness factor has gone down a little bit. Um, (laughs) Um, Yeah, bad old days, I guess. Grew up in Boston and came out here for Stanford, and uh, and then have been in the area since then. Very much Mm -hmm. enjoying it. And so you have the pedigree where you come out, and um, I mean that's you're, you. You should be like a Google founder or a Yahoo founder. I guess that's that's what you're looking to do, huh? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm really enjoying the entrepreneurial bent. This stuff freaking runs in the water at Stanford. Um, <laughs> certainly, back when I was there in '96 to 2000, everybody was involved in some sort of startup in some sort of way. It was just what people did. Mm. Yeah, so it felt pretty natural to me that at some point I would go and start my own company. That became really clear to me when I was working at Legato before they got bought by EMC. Mm-hmm. And for fun in my free time, I ported the company's flagship product to Mac OS X. 
and I got yelled at for it. <laughs> My manager wanted me to be really grateful to him that I was shielding him, that he was shielding me from the wrath of the other managers for working on an unauthorized side project. And I found out the day that I left, the, the salespeople had actually been selling multi-million dollar contracts based on that OS export. And I knew at that point that in order to get a slice of the value that I was creating as a computer scientist, I'd need to start my own company. Yeah, right. So what? Um, so what? So you 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 graduated and then you you went you hit the corporate world for a year. Is that right? Yeah, I think at that point so I had been involved with a lot of startups, especially around uh, digital audio. So I think everyone was kind of expecting me to go to an audio startup, and so I, I didn't really want to get put into a box. I wanted to be respected as a computer scientist. So I did the last thing anyone expected me to do and went to go work for a, a large corporate uh, enterprise backup company. That was Legato. So I worked yeah, I've got to tell you, that sounds like about the most boring thing you could do in the entire world. Well, you know, it's funny because I think it was definitely worth doing. There's some things that large old software companies do really well that startups don't give a lot of respect to, like really understanding uh, computer systems engineering, understanding build process and test and QA, and, and really getting that into one's blood is really important. There's a lot of things that they do very badly, like middle management. Um, there was definitely uh, there was some component of Dilbert World going on there, where there were yeah. people whose full-time job seemed to strictly consist of playing politics with other people whose full-time job was to play internal politics. So it's kind of a wonder that anything got done there. But there were – it was definitely an important part of my education that I don't regret at all. And I was deliberately doing something different than what was expected of me. And it's been very, very helpful as PBWiki has actually begun to transition into uh, being an enterprise software company. Well, we'll certainly talk about that. Um, so you, you, you spent a year there, and then what, what did you go after that? So after that, I went to go work for a very different kind of company, uh, called there.com. It was doing online virtual worlds. They're actually still around. Their most direct competitor is uh, Second Life. Um, so this is a this is a place where you go and it's a full screen app and it looks kind of like a game, but it's it's not a game. It's not like World of Warcraft. You don't have hit points. You can't die. You're not killing monsters. You're just hanging out with other people in this 3D world. You can go and do things with them. You can chat with them. You can buy virtual merchandise so you can make your character look like whatever you want them to look like. But it's it's not like a game where you're you're building up points by by killing bad guys. Hmm. And um, so what what kind of coding were you doing there? So I did a bunch of different uh, coding there, including uh, optimizing and managing their clusters of computers, uh, making their forms much faster, and I did the 3D audio jukebox in the world. So if you sign on at some point to there.com and see a, a jukebox that's playing music in 3D, uh, that was actually my work. That was the first 3D shoutcast implementation that anyone had ever done. So you like to be able to just write code around anything. You don't. I mean, you. I mean, if you're doing graphics and and sound and all that sort of stuff, that's that's fairly non-trivial programming. Yeah, I mean, I just I I enjoy I enjoy things that uh, affect people, <laughs> that, that make a difference in people's in people's lives that they can see, they can hear, they can experience. Hmm. Why did you not go to work for someplace like Electronic Arts? Um. What I was looking for moving out of Legato was a kind of extreme transition to something else, um, to be put in an environment where I was surrounded by people who were a lot smarter than I was. And I, I frankly wasn't really finding that at Legato. Um, <laughs> and there.com offered me that. It was 
still to this day the most intensely brilliant uh, team of technologists that I've, I've ever seen assembled before. A lot of that was due to the CTO, Ken Duda, who by hand pieced together the engineering team. He'd interview about 100 engineers for every one he'd hire. It was really intensive. What was crazy about that company was how secret they kept everything. I had to go through and pass five rounds of interviews before they would even tell me what the company did. Hmm. They were in they were in stealth beta for a long time before they launched. How did they keep you interested enough to go through that many interviews without knowing about them? Uh, the interviews were with people who were clearly smarter than I was, and it, at that point was was pretty rare for me to find somebody who was just whole giant heads and fields and leagues ahead of me and their technical depth and knowledge. These were people who had uh, written a good part of the operating system BOS. But very, very hardcore folks. And so it's like the quality of the interviews was intensive and very enjoyable. And it was clear that if I went to go work there, I'd be surrounded by people who I could learn a lot from. Hmm. All right. How, how long did you stay there for? I was there for about a year and a half. And then, so tell me how that went. I mean, if they, they, they got the, the technology guys right and the company hasn't been a big success, was it the management problems? Did they not, was the business model not right? What, what was about it that didn't get it to where it should have been? Boy, so I, I think there's a couple different factors. I think there's some question as to whether a 3D full screen immersive communications environment that's not a game can ever really be successful. Um, I, I think that mentally a lot of the communications media that have succeeded in the last decade or so have been what I call backgroundable. So you take a look at like IM, SMS, email, any of these things that have become wildly successful. And there are things that you can do while working on other things. There, there are tasks that are backgroundable. You, you, you don't have to be fully immersed, fully engaged in that thing, right? Mm-hmm. But something that's a full screen application where you can't really be doing other things at the same time, that's, uh, that really demands all your, your attention. It's not something that's backgroundable. And so it's not a way that you would casually go and interact with other people. It would be the only thing that you'd be doing. So it's not something you could do, for instance, at work. You couldn't keep in touch with people at work uh, using such a full screen technology. You need to like set aside time. And that time needs to be synchronized with when other people, the people he want to go and chat with, are also setting aside that time. And that, I think, ends up really limiting the level of participation, uh, the number of participants that you can get online, and the uh, degree to which the experience is compelling. Hmm. I think that people are willing to set aside time to go play a game, and they're willing to make a game be their... uh, full-screen, full-time experience. We'll just sort of chalk out, like, okay, I'm going to go and play World of Warcraft after I get home from work tonight, you know, between 7.30 and 9 p.m., right? I'm just going to go and play it for an hour and a half. And it kind of chalks that time off for goofing off. And it ends up almost by accident becoming a communications medium where they're connecting with other people and building these social relationships. But it's a game first, and the social aspects end up becoming the more interesting part after you've effectively uh, beaten the game. After you've so was the point of their one, was that supposed to be like, uh, sorry, their.com, and that was to, to hook up with your friends. It wasn't supposed to be like a big game or something. That's exactly right. I mean, it was, a, it was a place where you could go and, and do things in a virtual space with your friends to get to know them better online. Right. But but it wasn't a game. There weren't quests. You didn't go and, you know, play monsters. And I think it, it, it sort of needed to be a game. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, so it was, it was, in the end, it was a business model issue. 
Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think also the whole secrecy for five and a half years before they went into public beta was also a bad idea. I mean, my current philosophy on how businesses succeed now is distinctly opposite that. I think that in, in order to make the right thing, you need to get the simplest possible thing out there in front of people, hear what they say about it, and iterate it along with your customers versus trying to make this big, perfect, wonderful thing in secret. I think that's just a bad idea. So I, think that's it. I mean, I get maybe people didn't realize that as much back then, but I mean, another another to that line, the saying I know is the first version you, you put out of something is always going to be the worst version, and you're just going to get better from there. That's right. So it's important that you get started on that process of getting better as soon as possible. So, I mean, I think you should take the simplest possible incarnation of your idea and just put it out there. I think a lot of innovators have a problem that they're too smart. Um, they've got this really complex, overarching, uh, interesting, and comprehensive vision for what their product uh, is going to become someday, and they want to build the whole thing before they show it off to people, right. because otherwise the, the, the full impact of it won't be understood by the audience. And as a result, they end up handicapping themselves. They end up spending years working on something before putting it out there, and then it turns out that what they put out was the wrong thing. I know that now, and all of the people I work with on, online know that. Um, is, are you seeing that in the valley that people are understanding that, or do they still not get it? Um, I, I feel like entrepreneurs who have been around the block, who have you know, gotten some skinned knees, um, they understand it intuitively. Um, it's something I still see as a, as a problem in, in new entrepreneurs, that you know, they've got this big, wonderful, awesome, overarching vision, and you know, they're looking to build up a whole team to, to implement the whole thing before they launch any part of it. And, and sometimes they need some sense beaten into them, that they just need to launch the simplest possible thing that could work. Well, they don't even need a beaten into them, but, you know, you don't have to do it yourself. The market will do that for them. <laughs> right, but, I mean, uh, out of a desire to save them a few years of doing the wrong thing. <laughs> I think a really interesting example of that is actually um, Intermix, which was the company that owned MySpace. Do you know that story? I'd be happy to hear it from you. Just, I mean, just that they were doing uh, Internet offers. They were selling Hydroderm, which is um, a wrinkle cream. <laughs> they did a bunch of other stuff. They had a lot of uh, traffic inventory, and they were doing all kinds of, uh, like, email and all sorts of stuff like that. And and then some some of the guys in their team just had this idea for a little site to compete with Friendster, and they plugged it into the rest of their network so that it would get users, and the idea was that they would uh, create their own traffic inventory so that they could run their own offers against their own traffic. And uh, and then suddenly that blossomed, and um, the rest of the company became basically almost meaningless. And... and uh, and they, they jettisoned it all, and, and it became MySpace. I actually spoke today with the, I interviewed today the guy who who bought the rest of their stuff, and like the Hydroderm stuff is still going, and it's about a forty to fifty million dollar a year business. But you know nothing compared to MySpace. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I think that a lot of modern companies actually have this. I mean, you take a look at like PayPal's founding, and they were doing Palm Pilot to Palm Pilot encrypted money transfers. Right? Exactly, exactly. You That's a, a perfect like, example. You take a look at Flickr, and that was just meant to be the photo upload portion of this online adventure game. It wasn't actually meant to be a photo sharing service. Oh, I didn't know that one. You take a look at Slide.com's origins, and this was a Windows application that was meant to sit on your desktop for doing catalog shopping, so you could sort of like passively browse catalogs as a Windows application. Now, now they're you know the number one uh, Facebook application provider, and you know Craigslist was just this guy's mailing list. It wasn't even any technology at all. Yeah. 
So it's like it's really fascinating how how these things that start off really simple, almost as an accident, as a side project to something else, end up becoming really successful, end up really catching up. So the market will tell you what it needs, and that's why I think it's really important to get out there as fast as possible. I agree. But the other thing that, as a side to that, is you've got to have the resources to take advantage of the opportunity when it comes. Like the MySpace guys, they had all the resources. They had they had the uh, ability to send out emails so friends could invite their friends. They had the traffic so they could plug it into all this massive inventory and, and, and gain traction really quickly. Whereas you know if you don't have all the if you don't have the resources behind you, you the opportunity will just will just whiz, whiz by. Uh, that said, I, I feel like the amount of resources that you need to be able to take advantage of opportunities like this has just gotten increasingly small. Sure. You know, wh- whereby, if like, an entrepreneur comes, comes to me and doesn't have something implemented and is looking for advice on how they can secure a VC round, it's just like <laughs> I tell them to sit down for a reality check because if they can't come to a VC round with an already launched product with real customers, then they're going to get laughed out of the room. These That's a, an interesting topic because I've been talking with people. Um, the general consensus seems to be that the VC model is going away for um, internet stuff and I was reading in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about Sequoia Capital is uh, starting to do some stuff with endowment funds and things like that. Um, what, what are you seeing? I mean, what, what I'm seeing is that uh, what was traditionally thought of as Series A investment is has become sort of friends and family and what, is, what was traditionally thought of as Series B investment or more expansion capital is becoming Series A investment. Now, the, the price points are the same, but the stages are different. And what do I mean by this? I, what I mean is that 9899, you could come to a VC looking for a Series A round, looking to raise like $5 million based on an idea and a team. And you could just have like some quick, you know, whiteboard sketches of what you were looking to build. You wouldn't even need to have like a functional prototype or anything. Um, and then by the time you got to your Series B, it was expected that you'd actually launch your product. You were actually making some revenue. You didn't need to be cash flow positive, and you were looking to raise like $10, 20000000 million or something, right? And that, that's sort of what those different rounds meant. These days, you know, you're doing your Series A, you're raising like two, anywhere between the two and $10 million. It used to be they, they wouldn't even talk to you if you're looking to raise like $2 million. And you're expected to already have a product that's out there that's, um, that's got customers that ideally has a small amount of revenue. And that's the first time that you're, you know, talking with serious institutional finance is you, you already have all that stuff built. So you still see a place for this. You would, you still go out and write, did you raise money for your current, um, company? Yeah, February last year we raised a, a Series B from more David Allen. Hmm. So you still see a place for, for VC? You still want to go and get money? Very much so. It's just it's just later stage. Like I don't think you, I don't think it makes sense anymore to to come to VC with just an idea for a web startup. I think they'll laugh you out of the room. Yeah, I, I think they're they're looking for things that have a lot more polish, a lot more finish on them before you go and, and start raising. But but I mean, in a, a lot of the companies that I talk to, like lead generation or or mass market offers or whatever else, they they're already cash flow positive as soon as they get started, and they can scale up as big as the numbers will support. They have no use for for VC. I mean, you still you still feel there is some. Oh yeah, no, definitely so. I mean, I, I think that having the having the advance on your capital first off is really, really helpful. It lets you go and scale up faster than the competition. It lets you go and build out a sales team, marketing team, hire engineers. I think that even still, you know, having VC financing also just makes a lot of little things easier. 
knowing that you're VC-backed will make it a little bit easier to hire employees, will make it a little bit easier to get partnership deals. We found a lot of things just work a little bit more smoothly when people know that you have the backing of a real institution and, you know, versus just possibly being or not being solvent. Uh, if you're just on your own finances. What, what about so, the point, um, one guy told me that um, if your VCs are looking for home runs, and if you're not able to sell for $300 million, if you're only able to sell for $10 million, for example, or 20 that um, VCs won't, may not even want to liquidate that in their portfolio, so they'd rather the, the company just keep struggling along rather than taking a, a loss on it or a break-even, and therefore you, know, you don't get the cash out. Yeah, I I think that's actually, that is a reasonable point, but there's actually a flip side to that same point. And that's that a lot of entrepreneurs, and myself included, come into it thinking, oh, you know, I've got a $10, $20 million company idea. And what the VCs are very helpful with is opening your eyes as to ways that you could go and become much bigger than that. Does that make sense? So you think that the the, the VCs are helping you think of ways to scale the company? Absolutely. You know, I think when I started PBWiki, you know, I would have been delighted to know that there was a possibility that it could become a $5 or $10 million company. And I think that dealing with our VCs has really been tremendously helpful in opening my eyes to realizing that, no, 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 this could become a billion-dollar company and working with me to establish a roadmap for how we could become that big. So, I mean, what kind of things did – so they, they helped you with the planning. I mean, did, did you need to take capital from that? I mean, couldn't you have just gotten that same advice from a board of advisors or just some friends? Well, somebody who's really got their skin in the game is going to spend a, a is really got a lot vested in making sure that you make the right decisions, that your thinking is clear, and is going to be willing to spend a fair amount of time with you. The people who have on board with us from Moore Davidow have a lot of experience doing this kind of thing, can do all kinds of pattern matching that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to get out of my existing circle of advisors. Hmm. So, so, that, so they've actually it's extended your network, is that what you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so, so we talked about then um, the 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 graphic, the there dot com. What what uh, company did you? What did you do after that? So at at there dot com, after I'd been there for a year and a half, I was actually the first uh, engineer to voluntarily leave the company in the six years of uh, its operating history. Um, so I stood up in the middle of a company meeting and I said, hey, I've really enjoyed working with you all, but I'm going to go start my own company. So I wish you all the best and I'd love to keep in touch with you. Bye. Um, <laughs> but it happens that a month after I quit there.com, the CEO got fired and things got really messy and then the company kind of imploded uh, in a very messy, dramatic, and fascinating way, including a 72 to 1 reverse stock split uh, from a largely employee-financed company that had pulled $45 million of cash. So things got uh, surprising and awkward. Can, can uh, we say that was all your fault because you left? <laughs> no, no, but people did say I, I had um, rather prescient timing. Um, <laughs> so um, I knew at that point that if I continued to work at Dare.com, I'd become an incrementally better engineer, um, but that the overall value that I'd be able to provide the world would not be rocketing up, You know, that I was, I was sort of reaching the point of diminishing returns on my career investment as a, as a software engineer. And I was talking with other people about different 
places to go at that point, uh, including uh, an advisor from college professor who I had there, was a wonderful professor, who wanted me to go and get a PhD in computer science. I had talked with some PhDs in computer science and determined pretty quickly that that wasn't what I wanted to do. Took a look at going to business school, talked to some people in business school who all really enjoyed it, but they said, look, if what you're trying to do is understand how to run a business, business school ain't bad, but the best possible thing you could do is start your own business. Right. Okay. So I read a couple business books and just fired off to go start my own business. And what business was that? Well, I was thinking at the time that I was going to build a web-based project management application. So I spent the first two months after I left talking with project managers about what their needs were. And pretty quickly, I came around to the conclusion that this was going to be too hard, that the project managers I was talking with had wildly varying product requirements for what they would need to, to meet their needs. So I... Um, there was a part of the project management uh, prototype that I was putting together that involved taking central logs of instant messages so that people could IM about project requirements, and then those notes would get automatically attached to the project definition. Mm-hmm. And I decided to, to productize that part of it because it was pretty novel, and I wasn't seeing similar things like it out in the market. So I called it IM Smarter, um, and it Worked for a year and a half on it, had some pretty cutting-edge technology, but it didn't really take off. It was not particularly well-marketed, and I had spent too much engineering time working on making it fancy and scalable and not enough on making it, like, just really super obvious and useful for people. You weren't listening to the market. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was working too hard on, on making the technology fancy. So, like as a technologist, you sort of have this belief, not explicitly stated, that if you build cool technology, good things will happen. Um, Isn't that the same in music, where um, guitarists want to be able to play like the, the coolest uh, stuff, but then the coolest stuff is what people don't actually want to listen to? <laughs> yeah, I think you'll find it in any field. That yeah, what what the market wants is going to be different than what what you want or what you feel like what you feel like doing. You, you need to listen to the market. So then I, I realizing that uh, this wasn't really taking off, I had about 5,000 people signed up and, and using it, but that number wasn't really growing very fast. Uh, I started working on some different side projects uh, from I Am Smarter. And uh, one of those side projects I went and I wrote in a weekend, uh, PB Wiki, and I launched hoping that about a dozen organizations would sign up by the end of the year. And uh, two days later, I had like a 1,000 organizations signed up. I was like, wow, I, I need to pay attention to this. <laughs> so I, uh, I switched to going full-time on that. And that was in... So that was just something where you were just messing around with some code on one weekend, and, the, and, and that's where you got it started, and people just started using it. Yeah, yeah. And so so now, why did they all go and start using PBWiki rather than using Twiki or some of the, the others? out? I mean, there's plenty of wikis out there. So in June 2005, while there was a lot of different pieces of wiki software that you could install on your server, pretty much all of them had a step one. So you've got your Linux server, dot, dot, dot. And for most people out there who could take advantage of a wiki, for whom a wiki would be useful, they don't have a Linux server that's just sitting around ready to install some software on. Mm -hmm. What they wanted was something that they could just go and click and sign up for in a couple seconds, about as much time as it takes to make a peanut butter sandwich, and get their own private hosted wiki and just not have to worry about any of the servers. You know, I mean, and that's the decision, that's how exactly I made my decision, too. I mean, I've used Twiki since, like, 2002. I love it. Um, 
But I made the decision that I don't want to administer anything and that that's not my core expertise and that I want to right. leverage someone else's expertise. And so, therefore, I'm now a PBWiki user. Great. Yeah, I think that, that that pretty much exemplifies our user base. They're, they're people who are smart, and a lot of these people even have the technical competence to be able to go and install and run uh, a wiki service on their own computers, but they've got other things that they're doing. You know, I, <laughs> they, they, they have other things that they're working on. It doesn't really make sense to be spending a lot of your time doing internal IT, working on things that are not your company's focus. It's just a distraction by definition. Right. Um, so that started off, you got a 1,000 users. How did you get those 1,000 users? Was it just people referring to each other? Were you using anything to actually dr- to drive traffic? So I mentioned the project to a couple different friends of mine who have blogs, and they wrote it up, and then some of the bigger blogs noted it, and like, hey, this computer science guy went and wrote up this wiki system in a weekend, and it actually looks half decent, and it's very simple, and it's very easy to use. Like, hey, you check it out. And so it started making the rounds uh, very quickly in that sense, and as people signed up for it and started finding it useful, they in turn told other people about it. And... In the last three years, I mean, we've been experimenting with a lot of different kinds of marketing campaigns, different ways to get the word out about PeeBeeWiki, mm-hmm. but nothing's been nearly as effective as people telling their friends, people who love the product, people who use the product telling their friends. Hmm. You know, uh, I interviewed uh, Jason Freed. Do you know him? Um, remind me who he is. is... From 37 Signals? Yes, 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 yes. And in his interview, he talked about how a component of all of their products, because they're all collaboration tools, whether it's Basecamp or Campfire or Highrise, they're for working with teams. And so by default, uh, there's a viral growth element built in. Is that maybe the case for what you're doing too? I think to a degree. I, I think that uh, if it's useful within the team only, there's a, there's a limitation of scope, right? I mean, if there's 10 people on my team, and the product works really well for the team, but the product is only viral within the team, then maybe I can get all 10 people using the service really, really quickly. The question is then, what now? Right? How do you scale up your growth from there? How do you right. encourage the members of the team to go and use the service outside of the team? And the way that we address that is we, we wanted to make a service that was helpful and functional for all sorts of different kinds of purposes. So somebody could go and sign up for PeeBeeWiki to go and manage their daughter daughter's softball team, right, and then use that for a couple of weeks and, and then get this aha, which we'd hopefully nudge them into, saying, ah, oh, this could actually also be really useful at my work. And they'd go and they'd bring PeeBeeWiki to work. Hmm. Let me tell you the two uses I've had for um, that have been really, really profound for PeeBeeWiki. I'll give you two, okay. two, two free testimonials. Wonderful. So one is... Um, when we publish the interviews, um, I have a team of about six people that work on it all over the world, and um, so we have a dashboard where it takes the, the, the interview process from start to finish where one person does their job and then they mark it off as done and then it goes to the next person. So we're basically using it as a, as a step-by-step workflow um, from recording an interview all the way through to, to getting it completed. Um, and that's just been a major breakthrough because all of these people can be located wherever and they can all just get in and do their job when they need to. They, they, there's very strict parameters around what they have to get done and when they have to get it done, and as long as they fit within those parameters, it just works. And so I'm able to produce an interview every week with a distributed team like that. Fascinating. That's really awesome. So, so that's one. using it for light, lightweight project management. Yeah, 
It's um, I don't know whether you call it project management or because it's it's the same thing over and over. Maybe it's more like just a lightweight uh, workflow. Um, but because uh, I was sure. I was actually doing all of it myself and you know emailing all the files back and forth and everything and it was a, it was a nightmare. I it could yeah. have made a full time job job just that. And now we have we use FTP and um, and PB Wiki and it's it's just perfect. Awesome. Uh, been great. The second one, um, for my, I, I'm from Australia, um, and um, but um, along with other members of my family, we live all over the world, and um, we had uh, we got had a, a family a family holiday over Christmas, and um, so we were all coming in from from everywhere. I, I'm in the I live in the Caribbean. My one of my brothers lives in Washington D.C. Another one lives in Sydney. Another one's in the in the army off in Canberra. My parents are in Tasmania. <laughs> and we had our family PB wiki, and what we did was we put all of it. We used it as a um, a calendar. We had we basically broke down all the days that we were going to be together, and we coordinated as a family all of the different things we were going to do. Like uh, on this day we're going to meet up with uh, one set of cousins, and on this day we're going to meet up with another set. This day we're going to do that, and so we we were able to kind of coordinate it together as a family through through uh, remotely um, through PB wiki. Awesome. <laughs> we actually had one one drawback with that uh, when we found it actually in practice is that we were too efficient and we we ended up um, burning ourselves out because it was supposed to be a holiday, but we we were so efficiently able to pack things in using PB Wiki that we ended up having kind of a stressful holiday. Oh no! <laughs> but it, it really worked, and everybody was able to keep up to date with what was going on, and we're all all over the place, and it was just really simple. So um, thank you for putting up a great product. Oh, thank you so much. So, um, yeah. um, so how many users does PBWiki have now? Well, we've got about uh, 4 million people a month who touch the service in some way. Uh, we've got uh, about half a million people a month who make edits on PBWiki, who are uh, engaging the service as, a, as an editor. We've got about half a million unique uh, communities that exist on PBWiki. And we've got, um, I believe at this point, something north of 2 million unique pages of information hosted on our service. Hmm. Okay, so now, we'll, now I'm going to ask the, I guess this is the billion-dollar question, is uh, how do you make money? Because I, I haven't sent you any money. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm sorry about that. You deserve it, but, you know, I haven't. You haven't asked me. Well, yeah, I guess you have, but I haven't needed to. <laughs> so... Um, what we are is we're basically a web equivalent of shareware. So if you're using this, this service for your own personal uses, um, that's fine. We're not going to nag you too much. If you're using this at a company and you've got more than three people using the service, we're going to start bothering you. Um, we're going to start calling you. We're going to start emailing you. We're going to put messages on your wiki uh, after you've been using it for a while, like, hey, uh, let's have a chat about how you're using uh, PBWiki. So we, we charge uh, $8 per user per month. That's what we charge businesses to go and, and use the service. And we've been having a lot of success in rolling this out to, to companies small and large. So we've got about 30,000 different, 30, different uh, businesses that use PBWiki. Hmm. Um, do, with, with my uh, Meet Innovators account, do I need to be uh, paying on that one? Well, how many people do you have using it? Um, I'd say six. We'll be giving you a call then. <laughs> now your first your first three seats are free, so we'd be looking to charge you for the next three seats to bring you up to six, which would be twenty four bucks a month. All right. Well, I guess uh, have them contact me. Well, how can we have them been contacted? 
Well, um, we're actually just getting a number of these processes uh, in place. Um, having something in the order of 500,000 communities to go and manage has made it really interesting for us to integrate with Salesforce and mm-hmm. to actually start building up a real human sales force to integrate with Salesforce. We've got uh, four people who are full-time out in Nashua. Just hired another two people yesterday, actually, who are going through the different kinds of leads that we have put together and scraped together in Salesforce. It's really been kind of funny doing the integration because we've ended up bumping up against surprising limitations where Salesforce wasn't really expecting a company with 19 full-time employees to have like 2 million customer records. Um, so, so, right. so it's taken a little interesting juggling there. But we're getting around now to a process where we can uh, take a look at even some of the smaller scale clients that, um, who are like on your side who have about six unique people using the service and be able to reach out to you and say hi and hey let's let's talk about uh, getting you upgraded hmm. and so in a case i mean that 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 sort of situation in a case like mine um, what if i don't want to upgrade how how is that going because that's going to affect a lot of your users Sure. Um, so we do offer pretty steep first-year discounts, and we can also have a chat about, like, what are you using the wiki for? Like, how can we make you a success here? Um, what kind of price point makes sense for you? And especially since these are kind of early days for us, going in and get, making sure that this first-year pricing model works well for customers like you, um, we're, we're willing to be really flexible to make sure that we can give you a, a solution that makes sense for the, the kind of budget that you have in mind. Um, for people who are just absolutely unwilling to pay and are using it day in, day out at a company for commercial purposes and have more than three people using it, you know, at that point, we, we ask them to, you know, not use our service. Um, that's actually been fairly rare. At the point that we've got a company that's using our service for business purposes day in, day out and has a team of people using it and kind of counting on it, um, they recognize the value that PBWiki brings to their business, and they're, they're willing to discuss with us to have some price point that they're willing to pay. What will you do if someone else comes along and, uh, and uh, makes it all free? Well, I think there's a lot of suspicion about free, because free means uh, kind of re-nudging on any sort of guarantees. Like, are, are you going to go and trawl my private data here to try and pull up appropriate ads to go and display to me? Um, are you going to provide me with a service level agreement that will guarantee that my business critical data will be available to me? Um, am I going to be able to email somebody for support or call somebody for support? There's a lot of things that, that go away with free. Very, very small clients, somebody who might you know, maybe is like a two, three, or four-person operation may be comfortable with that sort of level of uh, whimsy, as it were, but <laughs> it's not really clear that larger teams with more serious work, with more valuable IP, are willing to just kind of throw it to the wind and just kind of cross their fingers and hope that the uh, provider who's giving them all the stuff for free will continue to give it for free without any strings. So, because I understood in the beginning you, the model that you were trying was um, forcing people to have uh, start off with public wikis and then uh, running some kind of AdSense on their pages, and I guess you'd keep the revenue from that. Did that model not work? Um, well, that's actually that's not correct. Um, actually, at the very start, when PBWiki started, you could only make private wikis. Uh, the ability to create public wikis was something that we added a little later on. We did experiment for about a year or so with running AdSense uh, advertisements on public wikis, but 
even though we were generating millions of ad deliveries a month, we were not getting anything more than beer money. And it was really clear that this was not going to be a business model that scaled to give us... Uh, was it beer money and you like to drink more than they'd pay, or is it just was it only beer money? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're some good drinkers here at PB Ricky, so... <laughs> Um, Yeah, it was pretty clear that in order to get to a business model where we'd be making tens of millions of dollars a year, we'd need unreasonable uh, amounts of traffic. And it just was not something that was going to to scale. What was scaling at the same time that made it really clear for us was that people were actually willing to upgrade to subscription payments. And so at some point, almost a year ago, we actually dropped all ads altogether from our service. Just to make it really clear to the world, look, this is our business model. We're a tool. We're selling a tool to people. We're not trying to interrupt you. I don't think that the ad model really makes any sense at all for uh, a business productivity tool. Mm. When you're going and searching, when you're performing a, like a, a, an Internet search, you're open to finding new information. That's actually very explicitly what you're doing. It's your mental model, right? I help. I'm trying to find out some information about blah, 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 right? Right. And so a company coming to you and saying, oh, by the way, I can help tell you about blah, 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 you know, and I paid for the right to go and say that I can tell you about blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Like, that's something that uh, a customer is, is happy to hear, is willing to hear. But if, if you're in the middle of organizing your team who's uh, transcribing these interviews, for instance, you don't want to hear about an ad for Huggies, right? You don't want to hear about – you don't want to be presented with ads for different things. You're in the middle of getting your work done. Yeah. So an ad is going to be a distraction to you. So we've actually seen this happen, that click-through rates, that uh, effective CPMs in non-search contexts perform really incredibly poorly. Right. But they take a look at, like, I mean, this is sort of Facebook's big issue right now is how to have a better business model than eCPM because they can't go public on their, on their current model. So I think that you know, as a business productivity tool, it, it really would not be an effective business model for us to go all ads, let's give away everything for free, and then let's bother the hell out of our users trying to get them to click on ads that have very little to do with what they're working on and in the process violate the privacy of their intellectual property by trawling through it looking for keywords we can advertise against. That's just not a model I feel like makes sense. Hmm. So, I mean, so the model is then paying per user – You've also got a very interesting captive audience there. Um, I, I remember seeing an email once about um, uh, a session on using PBWiki for project management. Um, are you going to turn that into some sort of training model? I mean, that if you if you gave people training and you know it could be paid sessions where you might pay fifty dollars to go in and learn how to use PBWiki with project management and stuff like that, is is that something you're looking at? I mean, because with two million users, you could you could do some pretty nice revenue there. What? I think that our success long-term is going to come from being able to provide a platform that meets people's needs, that where they've got pain points, they, can, they know how to use PBWiki to go and, and solve those points of pain. So if we can help PBWiki succeed at an organization by giving away training for free, um, even if it costs us some fair amount of money, I, I think we get ROI on that in a real hurry. Why would you do it for free when you could charge for it? Well, you know, it may be something that we, you know, we explore to have uh, premium training. Um, I'm not sure that we want to turn into a consultantship 
because scaling computer resources and computer time is a lot more effective uh, way to go. Well, it doesn't have to be, because um, you can still scale it, because you already have the user base built in. Um, when I saw that you were running a, a call on project management, I was really interested. Like, you have no idea how interested. Um, but I didn't call in because I'm really busy, and I don't really want to be on a, on a free call where um, I might be being pitched with stuff, and I'm not really sure of the caliber of it. If you got a top guy that's running, you know, $10 million a year of projects or $20 million a year of projects on, on wikis to go in there and train about it, and you charge 50 bucks for the call, I'd, I'd pay for it because that's worth my time to go in and listen to it. Fair enough. You know, that, that may be something we're looking at. We do archive all of our webinars for free later viewing. So if you wanted to go, if you didn't have the time to go and make that webinar about using PBWiki for project management, you could come back to it and view the video at, uh, at any later point. Uh, are, are, they, are they selling kind of calls or are they just straight informational? They're straight informational, but what we do is we do collect people's uh, people's information. We follow up with them after. We say, hey, you know, what did you think about the webinar? Would you be interested in using PBWiki at your work? Hmm. Okay, so um, what are some interesting uses of PBWiki? I mean, I've told you some of mine. I'm sure there's some pretty crazy ones out there. Oh, goodness. Um, we have got such a wild diversity of users. I, I have mixed feelings about holding a PBWiki user conference because I'm not sure all of our users would get along. <laughs> we've got, you know, anarchists. We've got people who run church, uh, churches based on PBWiki. Uh, we've got people who are putting together, like, erotic fiction novels. We've got the United Nations going and coordinating business responsibility plans. Uh, we, we've got uh, large chemical companies that are going and putting together uh, product safety uh, manuals for internal consumption. We've got advertising agencies that are using PBWiki to uh, give to their clients. So their clients have got this uh, this the latest up-to-date information about how their advertising campaigns are going. The FDA uses, is using PBWiki and a private projects to go and uh, coordinate the development of new medical devices. We've got three presidential campaigns that are being run on PBWiki internally. Uh, it's just, it's, you, you mean the actual campaigns are being run on PBWiki? Yeah. So for which, which can you say which ones? Uh, no, I don't think we're actually authorized to disclose which ones. But these include some people still in the running. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So there's just there's this wild diversity of folks. I mean, there was this one point where mid-last year, I was working on some of the firewall tuning rules to go and make sure that some of these more uh, aggressive networks that were uh, trying to hack into our servers uh, were getting blocked out. And I made a, I made a little mistake, and I fixed it like a, a few seconds later, but my phone rang. I picked up the phone, and it turned out that the uh, Utah legislature was mid-session and was counting on using a TV wiki for examining their budget and had been briefly shut out for a couple seconds, and they were rather upset, and I apologized to them for it. And it was just <laughs> and then hung up, and it was just like, whoa. <laughs> this, this, this system is really affecting a lot of people. You know, uh, it sometimes is a real surprise to find out about all the uses that are going on uh, of PWiki, not all of which we, we know about. But one of the really interesting ones is BarCamp. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. So BarCamp is a series of uh, self-organized conferences that happen all around the world 
on a pretty much continuous basis, and it's all organized on PBWiki. You can go to barcamp.org or barcamp.pbwiki.com. The, they go to the same place. They're both hosted on PBWiki. And you can go and set up your own conference talking about whatever subject material you'd like and put together the attendee list and the sponsors list and who's giving what talks. And it's this kind of viral, self-replicating form of a conference. Hmm. And then there's ones like that are that are happening almost on a continuous basis all around the world. They've been on almost every continent. I'm not sure there's been a bar camp on Antarctica yet, but they're probably working on one. <laughs> right. Hmm. Um, well, we're we're running out of time. Um, do you have any other things you want to tell us about PB Wiki or what you're doing going forward? So we've had a couple different market surprises where the people who have shown up to go and use the service have not been the kind of people we were necessarily expecting. The biggest case of this, the biggest instance of this, is how popular PBWiki has been within the education and library sciences space. It turns out, in retrospect, it's kind of obvious that what teachers are looking for is a modern tool that they can use to connect with their students outside of the classroom that doesn't require using the computer lab because the computer labs in a lot of these schools are, like, wildly overbooked, so it's an incredibly rare resource. It turns out wikis are perfect for them. So we've got over 100,000 educators who use PPWiki. They go and provide distance learning to, to organize their course curriculum, et cetera. It's a wonderful tool for that. And then for librarians, this stuff is like crack. I mean, you think about what their job is. It's collecting, organizing, and disseminating information. And that's precisely what a wiki lets you do in an easy and lightweight fashion. So wikis have taken off like wildfire within the library communities. And when I started PWiki, I did not think that this would be a helpful tool for educators or librarians. But they're the people who showed up to the party, so we have to learn to service them, to speak in their language, to give them case studies, and to make sure the product helps them become successful. Hmm. Cool. Any any other points you want to share? Uh, no. No, thank you so much for your time. Cool. Well, um, Thank you very much for doing an interesting interview. I'm glad I finally got the chance to talk with you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Feel free to call me anytime.